welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This is the full recording of our Security and Development Seminar on Inequality, Crime and Development in Latin America. This seminar is one of a series of four high-level discussions exploring the intersection between security, growth and development in Latin America. They are led by Thomas App, Senior Research Fellow at CID, and Joao Manuel Pino de Mello, Lehman Visiting Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, and future presentations from prominent academics, practitioners, and policymakers. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, with uh, this fantastic panel. I'm just going to introduce them real quick. We have here Rodrigo Suarez, who is the Lehman Professor of Brazilian Public Policy and International Public Affairs at Columbia University. Uh, to his right, we have uh, Felipe Campanche, an associate professor of public policy uh, here at the Harvard Kennedy School. And finally, uh, we have the honor to have here Emily Owens, who is an associate professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at the University of California, uh, Irvine. Uh, with that, uh, without much further ado, uh, I'd like to get into our topic today. So today we're going to discuss the interconnection between inequality, uh, development, and violence and crime. Uh, I wanted to start just by, by setting up the, the context. Uh, uh, and I'm going to just throw this question to, to all uh, three panelists. Uh, uh, is inequality and a bit of income, uh, wealth, opportunities, access uh, to finance, commuting time, uh, security networks, a cause or a consequence of uh, underdevelopment? Uh, I'm about to start with you, Emily. Do get your mic. We're Okay, so is inequality a cause or a consequence of underdevelopment? Um, you know, obviously, as I think we'll all agree, the arrows can point in both ways. Um, something that I, I think of as some really sort of compelling evidence of the role that inequality can um, play in sort of the persistence of underdevelopment is actually, and don't forgive me, this isn't Latin America, but uh, the historical development of the United States, um, particularly in the U.S. South. Um, so Ken Shea has done some really compelling work documenting that the vast inequalities in the southern states of the United, in the United States after the end of the Civil War led to an absence of development in institutions, um, particularly hospitals um, and public schooling. Uh, the reason for this was because the extremely wealthy people in the southern United States had the opportunity to acquire health care and education for themselves and their children elsewhere in the United States, leaving the majority of the population, you know, just, just without these sort of public services that in, in Boston, you know, there's, there's public schools and there's hospitals all over the place. This was not the case in places like Atlanta or in New Orleans. Um, and Kenshi did a really interesting job just documenting the role that failure of access to health care had in the productivity of a vast majority of the population in these states, right? Um, yeah, which is just something that always comes back to me when I think about the role that inequality can have in sort of persistently placing downward pressure on economic growth. You just don't have the opportunity to access all the human capital that you could have if people had access to health care and education. Thanks a lot, Emily. Just uh, a clarification before I, 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 we move on to Felipe and Rodrigo. Uh, this panel I I is focused on Latin America, but not restricted to, and, it's, and it's great to hear, uh, for instance, uh, other perspectives that would be very informative for, for, for our discussion. And uh, it's also supposed to be uh, more narrowly focused on Brazil, but definitely not restricted. But, so, Felipe. 
So uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, it's actually a topic, uh, specifically this question, something that I've been thinking about uh, for a long time because thinking about inequality was kind of my gateway drug into sort of social sciences and economics, and I was kind of really thinking about or wanting to, 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 to understand uh, the impact of inequality. And I pretty soon realized, like, how hard it is. So if you, you, know, if you think about uh, whether inequality is a cause or a consequence, you, you might say it's like it's neither and it's both, right? And it's neither in the sort of trivial sense that you might find developed countries that are relatively unequal, uh, poor countries that are relatively equal, and so on and so forth. So all sorts of combinations are possible. And in the less trivial sense that it's not particularly hard to think of mechanisms through which inequality might depress economic growth, for instance, by reducing access to opportunities, reducing human capital accumulation, or even through sort of political mechanisms that we might uh, get back into as well, but also ways in which inequality might kind of spur growth under certain circumstances. So, but on the other hand, I think in Latin America and Brazil in particular, inequality is so extreme that we're definitely kind of in a part of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the space, if you will, where it's really hard to believe that inequality is not hindering development uh, in Latin America and in Brazil. And I think Ricardo kind of articulated that in a very, uh, uh, in a very compelling way and, and, and clear as, it, as it's one to do. But I think the levels of inequality that you have in Latin America or Brazil really place large segments of the population outside of those networks, outside of the access to sort of basic inputs for their, uh, for there to be sort of, uh, to, to fulfill their, uh, their economic uh, potential and, you know, economic and beyond. So I would say in the case of Latin America, in the case of Brazil, I think inequality is most definitely one of the uh, kind of bottlenecks for development in a way that, you know, may not be as clear for other uh, Regions and other historical circumstances, but I, I, I firmly believe that we are we're in a we're in a dangerous part of the uh, of the connection between inequality and development in this uh, specific context. Thanks, Felipe. Rodrigo. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, João. Uh, I tend to agree with with Felipe. I think we in economics we historically we've been obsessed by this relationship, and there is the idea of this Kuznets curve that's inverted U relationship between inequality and income per capita, that inequality would first rise and then fall, fall as countries grow. There is, today we know that there's very little empirical support for anything like that. I mean, there seems to be like average levels of inequality seem to be lower for more developed countries, but as Philippe pointed out, there is a huge dispersion conditional on, on levels of development. So you're going to have relatively poor countries with very high and very low inequality, and you're going to have uh, wealthy countries with relatively high and, and very low inequality. So I think there is a, there is a lot of, uh, of dispersion. Th this, this relationship overall doesn't seem to be so tight. From a very long-term perspective, from a historical perspective, if we, we think about it in some sense, Inequality is a result of development, right? If you think about like 300 years ago, I mean, the 99% of the population of, uh, of the planet were, were extremely poor, right? So in some sense, uh, that's the great divergence period. Inequality is a, is a result of growth to some extent. But at the same time, I also agree with Felipe that, I mean, uh, along this broad, uh, this wide range of distribution of, of, of uh, of inequality, you have some some dimensions that could be 
positive in terms of investments in innovation and and uh, uh, and and potentially for growth in the long term, and you have some dimensions that can be negative for development and for growth related to um, access to public goods, access to investments in, in education, access to health, as Emily pointed out, and also political economy mechanisms, and when you have a very polarized society due to inequality, how this can lead to, to political instabilities, right? So in uh, moving away now from this kind of broad picture, if you think about Latin America, I agree that it's difficult to think not to link inequality today to the historical uh, inequality associated to the to the way that this, this the societies and the political systems in the societies were initially established, right? And how this persistent inequality through time has excluded a large part of the population from from uh, from productive investments uh, and and from from public goods and I do think that in the case of Brazil and Latin America as a whole this has 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 been for for the couple, last couple hundred of years of years a, a, a serious hindrance to to growth indeed so I guess you uh, try to summarize uh, apart from the uh, longer uh, terms that uh, that Rodrigo mentioned uh, Mostly inequality uh, drives underdevelopment, and this is something that we can, and uh, and that's particularly true for Latin America, I would guess. Uh, let me just uh, jump on a uh, on something that's more specific to our panel here, and uh, because uh, we we get this great context on the on the development and inequality from our three panelists, and uh, now I'd like to hear from them, and maybe just to invert the sequence, uh, uh, Rodrigo. Uh, stays with the mic, although we have four, uh, and then discuss the, the relationship between inequality and crime. Uh, there seems, uh, and uh, please feel free to qualify the statement that I'm going to make, there seems to be somewhat of a kind of consensus that inequality is criminogenic. Uh, that is, that inequality uh, causes violence and crime. Uh, is that so? And uh, how much can we explain our variations between countries over time. Uh, uh, how much of that can we attribute to uh, differences in, in inequality in income or wealth or opportunities? Uh, okay, so I think, I mean, if you look across countries, the inequality between, uh, uh, the, inequality, the correlation between inequality and crime and, and violence, generally speaking, is very, very strong, right? If you look over time in that context, it's a little less because there's very little variation in inequality. Like inequality is a very, it's a very persistent uh, variable over time. So it's very difficult to identify large variations in inequality across within countries over time. Right? So over time, this is less so. But even when we move to a within country context, I think there is some evidence of this correlation between, between inequality and crime. And uh, in some specific contexts, I mean, there are a couple of studies. I mean, Bourg Francois Bourguignon uh, and Fabio Sanchez, I think, have a have a paper looking at specific changes in the in income distribution over time within a country and showing how this may be related to changes in crime. So I think overall, the 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 the, um, the evidence points in that direction. But I think there's also evidence that indirectly would suggest the same thing, right? So there is a lot of evidence, and then I think much more robust statistical evidence 
on how welfare programs, that would be programs that would be related to reductions in inequality, but how welfare programs, different types of welfare programs, like welfare payments or conditional cash transfer programs, they seem to be associated with, with reductions in crime. And I think in a broader picture, I mean, th all of this evidence together, I think, tends to reinforce the idea that uh, we, we, s we do seem to have a very close relationship between inequality and crime. I think the initial interpretation of this relationship, going back to the, uh, to the early economics of crime literature, was very much related to the idea that a higher inequality would be associated with a higher return to illegal activities. Because if inequality is, is high, somebody who is relatively poor in this society is going to be extremely poor com compared to somebody who is extremely wealthy in this society. So the return to, to, an, to, to, to a criminal activity would be higher, right? Um, I think in some sense that in terms of what I've learned over the years, looking at the evidence and so on, I think that it's, and I think it's related to, to, to other dimensions of, of, the, of the inequality in terms of victimization as well, uh, that actually the, the relationship between inequality and crime and violence is much broader than that, right? I think it's related, as Ricardo pointed out, to inequality in access to public goods and what it, this means in the long term, for example. So inequality in access to education, that's going to be... Inequality in income is correlated with inequality along several dimensions, right? And um, mostly a provision of public goods. So inequality in access to education means that some people are going to go to the labor market with uh, much worse opportunities. This person, I mean, there's a large literature showing that people with lower levels of education and worse labor market opportunities have a higher probability of becoming involved in crime. Uh, inequality in income is also going to be correlated with inequality in access to public security, right? Uh, also, as Ricardo pointed out, that distribution of public security resources is not homogeneous. People, I think, if people here from Latin America, they're going to know that they are not homogeneously distributed across the across the territory, right, across the city. So this clearly has a, also a correlation with socioeconomic status. This also is going to uh, is going to end up generating crime because of an unequal allocation of resources, right? So I think there is an issue of access to public goods and inequality in access to public goods that I think is very much related to. To uh, it's it's part of the mechanism in this relationship between inequality and crime. Uh, one one thing that I would uh, like to point out, and Rodrigo has mentioned several mechanisms that are interesting, is that when we talk about crime, uh, we we have in mind uh, not only like just violent crime, but also all the other types of uh, illegal activities uh, like corruption. Uh, so, with that, Felipe. Uh, what is your take on this, uh, the, the traditional, uh, let's say, direction of causality from, uh, from inequality to, let's say, crime or other illegal activities? So uh, I, I don't have much to add in terms of the, the, the description of the evidence. I mean, Rodrigo had a, an extremely comprehensive uh, uh, review or overview of that. So I would actually like to sort of think about, f first of all, I, I don't think it's, I think it's very plausible that the effect of inequality on crime is not what we call linear, right? It's not as if like any increase in inequality would have like an increase. So if you happen to increase inequality in Boston, you would have a spike in crime, right? I think it's very likely that in the different direction, if you have very high levels of inequality, as is the case in Brazil and Latin America, 
you would then have a, a, a kind of a stronger impact than at lower levels. So there's something uh, uh, I think that is plausible about sort of this nonlinear effect. But I think what really I've, I, I wanted to push this also in the direction of kind of thinking about how this effect of inequality on crime and on sort of the, 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 the prevalence of illegal, of, of kind of illegal activities sort of more broadly affects the impact of inequality on development that we were kind of addressing the first question as well. Kind of there is, I think there is an interaction between sort of the impact. This is one of the ways in which inequality is a drag on development, I think, in Brazil and Latin America, is through its impact on criminal activity and corruption. And one way to look at that is basically kind of just the amount of resources that are spent kind of uh, 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 dealing with or sort of trying to protect against crime, right, is clearly like a, a big uh, cost for the economy, but also I think in terms of sort of delegitimization of the political and institutional environment, when people kind of think that, for example, that uh, as a result of this sort of inequality in access to, 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 to public goods, or to, which kind of translates into access to political influence as well, people perceive that the whole system is kind of more illegitimate. I think that is something that also, uh, 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 you know, increases the drag that inequality represents. Right. So this idea that people, uh, I think, is very common uh, uh, in Latin America uh, and uh, uh, in Brazil in particular, that rich people get treated differently, uh, uh, you know, by the institutional environment, is something that I think is is very unhealthy for institutional development, for the consolidation of institutions and democracy, and that also has an impact on economic development and development more broadly. Uh, great, Philippe. And that, that actually uh, brings up the, the issue of, like, the, say, legal cynicism and, uh, and its uh, detrimental uh, uh, effects on, uh, on law enforcement, for instance, which we might uh, uh, take on uh, later on. With that, Emily, uh, I'd like to hear from you, uh, uh, again, on this more traditional channel that runs from inequality to criminal activities and to uh, less sec uh, security. Uh, maybe uh, what does the evidence for the U.S., where most of the research has been done, uh, what does it tell us? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think I want to be a little bit more precise about what we mean when we say inequality and also what we mean when we say crime. Um, so inequ there's inequality in the sense that you have two individual people who are right next to each other and one has a lot of resources and the other doesn't. Um, there's also poverty and I think that sometimes when researchers talk about and policymakers talk about inequality and crime they're really actually talking about poverty and crime um, and so I want to make that sort of distinction between inequality and poverty clear. Um, there's also crimes of violence, there's crimes that are income generating, and I think the sort of the relationship between both inequality and violence and inequality and income generating offenses can be different, as well as the relationship between poverty and violence um, and poverty and income generating offenses. Um, another thing I want to, to clarify is that a, there is, as economists, I think we all believe there is a supply of people who are willing to commit crimes, a supply of crimes, and a demand for crimes. Um, and if we're thinking about you know, who are the people who are willing to engage in criminal act actions, the supply of crimes, I think poverty plays a very important role in that um, in the sense that if you don't, is my mic, is my mic up 
beyond. Okay, mm -hmm. if you don't believe that you have a high legal return to your time, if you don't think that you're able to earn a lot of money on jobs, if you think the opportunity cost of you sitting in prison or in jail is quite low, then you might be willing to commit crime for any sort of given value of criminal opportunity or any, any given theft opportunity out there. Um, it's also the case if you don't think the if you think the police are perhaps going to stop you, if there's a different justice system for you than there is for a wealthier person, um, you might be more willing to engage in crime for any sort of given level of police activity. This is, you perceive that you might be arrested or stopped or hassled no matter what you do. This, I think, is plausibly the case or arguably the case in some areas of New York City um, during the sort of stop, question, and frisk period of time. Um, so poverty or an absence of access to legal opportunities could lead people to be more willing to supply criminal offenses, to be more willing to commit crime for any sort of level of theft opportunity or burglar opportunity out there. Um, I think there's a, a fair amount of evidence, and just empirically it's sort of consistently the case, that lower income people are more likely to engage in criminal activity. Um, it's also the case, uh, and there's some interesting evidence on this from the United States um, by an economist, David Burke, who's looked at sort of how low-income people are concentrated in communities across the United States based on the way in which that um, community has basically supplied housing, if they've used sort of a public housing system, which tends to really concentrate a large number of poor people together, or a voucher system, which leads to more sort of dispersions of poor people throughout a community. Um, and what David Burke found is that you know, when you have a lot of concentrated poor people, and so are we going to call this inequality? <coughs> In some sense, these are communities where everyone is poor. It's an unequal city more broadly, but in terms of who you're interacting with every day, everyone is low income. Um, he found in those areas there were higher rates of violence, which he attributed to a sort of conditioned response where if everyone is more likely to engage in crime, there's a return to you of demonstrating that you are a violent individual who can protect yourself if you're threatened. Um, and this is, I think, a little bit related to some current really interesting research done um, in Chicago by Sarah Heller um, and Jens Ludwig on becoming a man and sort of training people who grow up, training young, uh, young adults who grow up in very poor, very violent environments to not use violence as an automatic response to any sort of interaction with someone else who might be more likely to also be violent if they're also more likely to be you know, very poor. So is that, it's sort of inequality, but it's really like poverty, I think, that's leading to an increase in the supply of criminal behaviors. Um, I do think there's also evidence, um, this is some research that I've done that looks at more of the inequality in the sense of like really slow, uh, small-scale inequality, you have a low-income person who's living next to a high-income person, uh, when there's an increase in the supply of criminal opportunities, I would say, um, and more valuable stuff to steal, and that that can actually also generate an increase in income-generating offenses, but reduce violent offenses, um, which this is actually consistent with David Burke's idea. If you're around more higher-income people, there's less of a probability that any person you interact with is going to behave in a violent manner toward you, and so you don't need to express violence quite as much if some fraction of the people who you interact with are not perceive the, the cost of violence going to be very high. Um, so I've done some research, and this might actually be relevant for the way Opportunidades, so some of these income transfer programs are administered. Um, if you have government programs that provide large benefits to some people in a community but not others, uh, you can observe an increase in income generating offenses by the people who didn't win from this program. Um, in addition, sort of housing subsidy programs that can 
sort of attract the, I would call like near poor to low income environments can reduce violence on average, but you do see some like increases in car theft, for example, you know, sort of increases in crime because of the increase in criminal opportunities that really small scale inequality, not just like poverty brings. Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Emily. Uh, and let me, uh, let me try to just amplify just one, one of the uh, possible channels that were mentioned, which is this, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm reminds remind me of some, uh, some recent work by, uh, by Rafael Ditella, who's uh, at the Harvard Business School on this uh, notions of fairness and how uh, do we know a lot on how this like notions of fairness uh, for instance affect uh, the propensity to commit uh, uh, to, to behave criminally to commit violent acts uh, so I'd like to say something about that actually because I think it ties back to the <coughs> to the point I was trying to make about sort of broader impacts on development I think there's like a very interesting research kind of showing how inequality matters more insofar as perceived as being kind of uh, uh, unfairly, generated unfairly, right? And that this can actually perpetuate kind of a cycle of uh, 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 disillusionment and, uh, 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 you know, criminal, you, you could kind of extend that to criminal activity and, and, and sort of corruption more broadly. So the argument is, if you think that people who are rich got rich unfairly, right, then you would be very willing to redistribute resources away from them. And that goes for redistribution via the political system, but you could imagine that this goes also via, you know, like, you know, taking it in, in, in your own hands, right? But then in a world where redistribution takes place like this, then you end up kind of generating a distribution of resources that is, is, can be perceived as unfair, right? So it's like if you're living in a world where it's like whoever is strongest gets, gets the rewards, right? That is kind of then reinforcing that initial perception and confirming this, whereas you could have a different situation where you perceive the distribution of resources as being more fair so then you, you are less likely to demand that kind of, uh, or, or to, to, to be willing to tolerate that kind of redistribution. And I think that can actually explain some of the, the, the dynamics that, that I think happens in, in, in uh, high inequality societies, like again, Latin America. Or Brazil. I think, and that partly goes through crime, partly goes through overall sort of uh, uh, institutional disillusionment and disengagement. And I think that has an impact on development. That's one of the channels through which inequality can perpetuate uh, under development. So, Rodrigo and Emily, if you want to jump yes. in on that one. So, I mean, I, just going back to one point that Emily raised, I mean, I think that in lack of fairness in the public security system can definitely generate crime in, in, in the sense that, I mean, I'm going to be stopped and I'm going to be harassed <laughs> no matter what I do. So, what the hell? I mean, it doesn't matter really if I cross the line or not because I, I belong to a certain group that's going to be treated unfairly anyway, right? So I think that's part of, uh, of, of, of the, uh, uh, let's say, part of the phenomena of, of gangs in Brazil or, or in the U.S. or in, in, in certain places of Central America. That it, 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 the punishment system is not correlated 
with your behavior, really, right? So that, the sense of unfairness along that dimension, I think, is actually conducive to crime, right? And uh, if you put on top of that issues that also Emily alluded to of, uh, of uh, teenagers in this extremely poor and violent uh, context where violence is a way to affirm yourself and to kind of establish your identity, I think this definitely contributes to this, to this, um, to this criminogenic environment, right? It's on. Okay, all right. So one thing I would want to add, though, and this is a little bit different, um, is the causal, what, we, what I think we as, you know, scholars know about the causal impact of fairness, uh, in this, and by fairness I mean sort of procedural justice and the legitimacy of police and the criminal justice system in the community, what, what the causal impact of that is on criminal behavior. Um, so I think that the United, many sort of practitioners in the United States have sort of bought into this idea that increasing legitimacy and increasing procedural justice, the idea that this system is treating you fairly and that you understand why an officer is stopping you and you feel like, you know, the officer heard your specific situation and, you know, you had a chance to give the officer feedback. Um, I think there's a, a belief that 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 incre improvements in procedural justice or sort of Tom Tyler star legitimacy can actually reduce crime. People will obey the law because they think it's fair, because they think it's right. Um, and there's a lot of correlational evidence that shows that people's perceptions of the legitimacy of the criminal justice system are correlated with, are negatively correlated with their propensity to engage in crime. Um, but I think that it, the real evidence kind of stops there. These things are correlated. I, I don't know that this is a really, I think, uh, dynamic area of research is trying to figure out if there is actually a causal relationship that you can actually reduce crime by making the police and the criminal justice system appear to operate in a way that is more legitimate, or more fair, more equal. All right, that's, uh, that's great. Let me, yeah, let, let's, I think we, uh, the three of you have uh, touched uh, uh, this issue already, but I would like to, uh, just uh, make it a little more systematic. The uh, what I've called the tradition or the standard channel uh, between these two, uh, let's say, variables, inequality and crime, which has been I think widely explored, is the one that says, well, some sort of inequality is criminogenic through different mechanisms. Now I want to I want to take us to the opposite direction. Uh, because uh, my my uh, my my take on this is that this is a much less explored uh, direction of uh, of causality. It's how uh, crime itself causes inequality. And and by the way, I think that mostly the in the reverse uh, direction of causality, how crime causes different things, is much less explored. Perhaps it's because it's it, it's much harder uh, to explore it. Uh, rigorously, uh, empirically. So uh, let's start with Felipe on that one. <laughs> that's a, that's a so uh, again, question, huh? yeah, yeah, no, I might be uh, 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 kind of emphasizing this, the, the same uh, aspect uh, repeatedly, but I think it's worth emphasizing. So I think similarly as in like very high inequality uh, context, the impact of inequality on crime or on development is kind of particularly salient. I think it's also true when you have a very high crime environment. 
And the, the one piece of kind of research that I think to me sort of has kind of informed my, my thinking on this issue is actually by uh, two economists who happen to have been students of both of João, Rodrigo, and myself. Uh, so this paper that looks at uh, Rio and shows how crime, like very high crime neighborhoods, uh, are, are basically what you have sort of open conflict situations, right? And you have when, when sort of conflict flares up, uh, kids can't go to school, right? Because it's like too dangerous, right? So it's like the real version of snow days is like, you know, <laughs> bullet days, okay? And then they show uh, uh, the impact that this has on uh, test scores, right? And like student performance. And obviously, you know, that then carries over and gets back to Rodrigo's point about how you know, in a, sort of you, you, by affecting decisions on the acquisition of education in human capital, you, you can also perpetuate a cycle in which these people are now going to have less opportunity and then you kind of feed back into the process in which crime enhance, increases inequality, which increases crime and you kind of end up in this. So I think there's very good reason and, and sort of solid evidence that uh, uh, shows us that this can be very much true in high crime environments because you have this uh, uh, impact on access, right? Crime impacting access to other public goods and to other resources, to other things that affect productivity and therefore that is going to uh, have an impact on inequality. So I think that's, it's, it's, it's a very, very real channel, again, in the context of, that we're uh, talking about. Thanks. Uh, do you <laughs> so, no, I'll uh, uh, no, step back a little bit. I'm going to end up getting to the, the same point of, of Felipe, but uh, because this, uh, I think, speaks a little bit also to the first question, to some observations that I made on the first question. So I think, uh, and Emily, please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand, when you look to the U.S., victimization um, of different types of crimes tend to be higher among the poor, right? In Latin America, you have kind of a slightly different phenomenon. Victimization for property crimes tends to be higher among the wealthier, but victimization for violent crimes tends to be higher among the poor. Right? So, in fact, I mean, this observation, this, so this already speaks to the impact of, of crime on inequality, because that's a very important dimension of welfare. If you, if you think about the context of Latin America and violent crime being homicides that are a very, very serious public policy issue, I think this is the biggest concern in terms of crime, right? So we already have a, a huge and very unequal impact of, uh, of crime on, uh, on society, right? It's very concentrated on the poor. But actually, this observation is what first, when, when thinking about the relationship between inequality, from inequality to crime, this observation is actually what first puzzled me in relation to the more traditional explanation from economics. Because the most, more traditional explanation from the strictly economic view would be that higher inequality, as I mentioned before, if you are a poor person in a society where there's a bunch of extremely wealthy people, the returns to crime are, are higher, you would victimize the wealthier person, right? So if you take the strictly economic view, I mean, the very basic and simplistic uh, view of the, of the traditional economics of crime, you should expect victimizations to be always concentrated among the wealthier, right? So how was it that you had victimization of certain types of uh, more violent offenses is still correlated with, with inequality, but actually concentrated typically among the poor. There, there had to be some other mechanism, right? So I think this 
goes back to goes back to the relationship between these two two phenomena, the two-way relationship. And actually, I think this is somehow part of, of, of what makes me think that a large part of the relationship between inequality and crime in both directions is related to access to public goods, generally speaking, right? And par part of it, access to, to the public security apparatus, right? So, I mean, on top of that, you have the type of, of, of effects that have been, apart from this immediate effect of, of crime on inequality through crime itself, that the, the, the worst types of crimes are typically concentrated among the poor, uh, even in places where, uh, where property crimes tend to be concentrated among the wealthier. Uh, the the long-term effects in terms of uh, the, the indirect consequences of crime are going to typically be much higher when you're talking about these extreme outcomes like homicides and violence, right? So one example is the example that Felipe gave, the impact of violence on human capital accumulation. There is not only in Rio, there is, ex uh, there, there is evidence on that also in other contexts, even of, like, of guerrillas in, in Colombia and Peru, how this affected a long-term accumulation of human capital of children in the affected areas. There is evidence of actually investments of uh, entrepreneurship and investments in small businesses in areas uh, more prone to crime in places like uh, uh, Colombia, as well, if I'm not mistaken. So I think this all end up also affecting uh, investments, long-term investments, right? And, uh, and this ends up having also feeding back in the, in directly on, the in, on income inequality itself, right? So there's welfare inequality generated from crime directly because of crime itself, and there's actually the reproduction of income inequality through the distortion, uh, distortions in individual decisions due to, to higher levels of, of crime. Yeah, so I guess I have a few things to add to that. Uh, just re-stating that there is like this, I think now robust body of evidence demonstrating that exposure to short-term sort of spurts of violence, you know, shootings, gang wars, guerrilla activity, right, does appear to have a, a, an interesting causal impact on test scores and children sort of willingness to go to school, right, which can both, if you have many of these shocks, you know, reduce total human capital accumulation or to the extent that test scores are used to sort of track students, right, you have someone who sort of gets on a, a lower track because of violence in their neighborhood. Um, that's also been shown in the United States. Um, there's also some interesting, so it's not just like microfinances affected. I think, you know, in the United States, we've had this like great rebirth of the American city. Um, and uh, something that I think Stuart Rosenthal did some, some early work on this and that really is, I think urban economists kind of agree as part of why cities are, are attractive places to live now in the United States in a way they weren't in like the 80s, has to do with lower crime and the decision of business owners to open up stores and restaurants and just places where you can work and also places where you can acquire things in areas where crime rates are lower and they don't face the threat of, of burglary or robbery um, or loitering. Um, I think all of these things can lead, can have violence or exposure to crime sort of reduce economic activity and reduce growth and increase inequality. Um, I'd also just want to make one point about Rodrigo's comment about like this puzzle as to why higher income people in the United States aren't victimized as much, um, particularly with respect to property crime. You know, so, so again, there's a, there's a supply and a demand for crime. Um, and the demand for victimization is sort of the inverse of your decision to invest in protection. Um, and you know, if you decide to not protect yourself from crime, you know, what you're doing is allowing yourself to always have a higher level of income. You aren't spending the money or time sort of preventing your um, I'm sorry, if you decide to make an investment in crime, 
you're deciding to make a, you know, 100%, you're going to have a lower income because you're spending some of your money placing bars on windows or hiring a security guard. If you don't protect yourself from risk, you know, maybe you'll get away with it, maybe you won't. It's sort of this, this uncertain, maybe it's going to help you out, maybe it's not. Um, and so what we'd, what we'd expect to see just if, you know, the margin utility of income is diminishing is that higher income people would be more likely to make the sort of certain investment in protection because they aren't, you know, that, that, that's something they can afford versus sort of exposing themselves to, to more risk. Um, so I think if you were to sort of like to look at that on average, you might see in the United States where there's more segregation. And I'm not really thinking of Rio where you have, you know, favelas that are just interspersed throughout the city, right, and very low-income people and very high-income people close to each other. And you don't see so much of that in the United States. So what you observe is wealthy people who've invested a lot in protection and don't have really low-income people living near them, right? So while there might be, yeah. But, no, just, I, mean, I, I agree, but then crimes yeah. just should be lower, right? I mean, <laughs> what's puzzling is that if a guy is to commit a crime, it doesn't make much sense if you take the most standard framework, right, from the economics of crime to rob somebody that's just like you. Because then you can just go and work, right? Well, so <laughs> it's a combination of, you know, what stuff do they have and then what is the probability you're going to be able to capture yeah, that right. and the police aren't going to be called, exactly. right? So all these things are varying at the same time. Uh, I'm seeing that Philippe wants yeah, to jump in. Yeah, I'll just add one marker uh, uh, in the discussion uh, based on uh, Emily's point, because Emily's sort of highlighting a spatial dimension uh, of the whole issue, which I find it very interesting, uh, partly because of my real background, I, I guess. But I think when we think about inequality, it's not just inequality in the dimension of income, but how that maps into space as well. It's very different when you have the same degree of inequality, but with rich and poor people segregated versus when they're not, right? And obviously segregation, it's been shown, uh, you know, uh, very robustly that it has all sorts of impact in terms of opportunities and sort of the, the reproduction of inequality as well. So I think that's another dimension. In space. In space, yeah, exactly. So that I think is something that maybe we can return to, uh, you know, later on, but just to place a marker on that. So. Yes, uh, actually, let me um, try to make a connection then, because uh, I'd like to connect. Uh, so the, our screenplay set out that I, uh, we should talk about uh, a little bit about policy. But before that, uh, there is something about this uh, spatial distribution, but also there might be something on this connection from, from crime to inequality. How does the political economy of law enforcement deployment uh, plays into this. Do we have evidence on the political economy and how, because uh, uh, growing up in Brazil, we, al we always have this anecdotal tales that police would uh, protect the rich. Uh, but then again, the rich also protect themselves by investing in the, the private security. Uh, what does the evidence say? Do we have a, a, a lot of evidence or even if it's not evidence, what's do you guys have any take on that? And just feel free to. So I, I think there is a, a. I mean, I think this general idea. I, I would go even further than just uh, distribution of police, right? I mean, it's just the absence of of the state, right? And I think in Latin America, it's very common to have large. Uh, I, I want to give the spatial dimension because I think it's relevant. It's not like fractions of the population. It's la largest, large areas of, of of countries or of cities, if you want where the state is just 
absent from from them, right? Completely absent. And then it's police, it's it's uh, it's educational systems, the health system, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think violence arises in part also as a mechanism to sort out uh, different sorts of conflicts when you don't have a state to to sort out this uh, these conflicts, right? And I think we do have some evidence that the policy can have an effect on that. On that, and I think the recent evidence from a friend of ours, Claudio Ferraz, that has uh, uh, advised a couple of, of students on the recent uh, and now I, I guess uh, they have pushed it back. But I mean, the, the UPPs in Rio, the, the pacifying police units that that were distributed throughout the city uh, to areas that were areas like the ones that I described or from from which the, the 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 government was completely the state was completely absent and the impacts on on crime rates were were, were huge right and uh, in the very very short run the impacts on on crime rates were were very large impacts on real estate prices around these areas also were very large so we see that I mean indeed people were understanding what was going on and people were actually valuing it so I think the, the issue of the unequal distribution of resources across space is a, is a first-order issue, and I think we do have evidence that it works. It's, I mean, it costs money, right? And uh, you have to, to establish priorities on that, but uh, I think there's evidence that it works. Emily, you want to? Oh, let's see. Um, so I completely agree, right? The, the absence of the state is, is, is from just large geographic areas is clearly a problem in Latin America and the way that in the United States, I think there are much smaller communities where you could argue that the state is functionally absent, but not just on the scale that, that we see um, in Brazil and in Rio. And I, I think it is amazing and just very consistent with theory, right, that the introduction of police, of some, you know, some somewhat legitimate benevolent social planner <laughs> type model, right, can really reduce, um, reduce crime and increase economic activity, if we're thinking about like Erica Field in Lima, Peru, just say, giving people uh, titles to their houses and saying the state will now enforce this title so you can go out and work. You know, um, that seemed to be a really effective way to reduce sort of reduce child labor force participation, but also, you know, increase the probability that people worked outside their home. Um, I think that something that in the United States police um, and the criminal justice system is struggling with right now is how to deal with, I, I think, like what happens after the police are introduced into, into an area, which is, you know, what, what, what do you do when the people who get arrested and the people who get convicted appear to be systematically people who are lower income and also people who have darker skin um, relative to the average, um, relative to the modal American, white people versus black people and brown people in the United States. Um, and there... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, something that my own, do you want to talk about police or do you want to talk about sort yeah, of prosecution yes. and ed education? Yeah, I mean, a rough approximation, um, as a, a call, I'm writing a, a doing some work in, in San Francisco with a, a colleague of mine who's a qualitative researcher, which is very interesting, a, and a rough approximation of her characterization of, you know, the adjudication process in San Francisco is people are looking at their watches. Like, the, the lawyers are just trying to process cases as quickly as they can. Um, and 
people with more money can hire a defense attorney and pay the defense attorney for that time to really slow down the adjudication process and make sure that you know mistakes were not made and that if a plea bargain is accepted, it is an accurate plea bargain and proper investigation was done. Um, if you don't have the money or you can't raise the money to have that type of lawyer, your case isn't going to get that time and there's more likely to be specifically a mistake in your case. Um, you know, and then you're more likely to be incarcerated. You're going to miss work. Um, you know, you're you're more likely to get divorced. I think is what sort of Bruce Western and Leonard Lopo think is so the relationship between incarceration and family stability, um, which could lead to further inequality. Um, I think there's also some really interesting research. A couple of papers right now, including one by Crystal Yang at Harvard Law School, demonstrating the role that. Uh, money bail can have in inducing people who can't afford bail that is sort of set arbitrarily high because the magistrate who's determining your bail just has a taste for high bail, right? Um, demonstrating the role that failure to make monetary bail can have in the probability you plead guilty and then subsequently your ability to earn money once, you, once your case is finally adjudicated. Um, so, so these are ways in which the way the criminal justice system works can perpetuate inequality. So that's, uh, that's great. So th this channel from, from crime to inequality, uh, there is a contribution uh, sort of mediated by the uh, the public, like the justice system and uh, uh, how it plays out. Uh, we were supposed to talk about policy. My take on this is that, because uh, if, you, if you want to talk policy, and uh, yes, I'm, I'm going to throw into Philippe this before, because I, I want to throw you, you in a hot spot here. Because before, it's, it's kind of hard to uh, change inequality in the short run, as Rodrigo said. So. As a policy variable, of course, we can, we can do policy to, to address inequality, and uh, it has been done. But uh, from, a, from a criminal justice uh, perspective, uh, so before we jump into that, I would like to, to throw Philippe in a hot spot and say, if public security in Latin America is such a big issue, has tremendous impact on welfare, why hasn't the democratic franchise uh, solved this problem uh, at, or mitigated as well, it has it, it did mitigate uh, other problems. I think that I is think a great to answer that one. Yeah, no, that is a that is a, a big puzzle, and it's it's really striking, right? You would imagine, like, if you think about the size of the problem and the way it kind of weighs on people's lives, you think like the political reward for solving that is just like so would be so big. Like any guy who could claim to have you know s you know make you know, like a big dent in the sort of security situation in a Brazilian city, like, would get reelected. And there is evidence that that has happened, right? Even with, like, with the Rio uh, uh, experiment, right, that there is the political payoff uh, uh, for that. Now, then the question is, why hasn't that been enough? And here I think, and this I think is, is a good lead-in to sort of the policy discussion, because here I think we get to uh, Rodrigo's point on sort of the absence, like absence of security is one aspect of the absence of the state, right? And all these things are complementary, right? All these dimensions. So when you think about the, and, and it seems right now that that experiment, which paid political dividends in Rio, right? So the kind of underscoring the, 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 the potential for uh, political solutions is now basically collapsing, right? Part of that is due to kind of budget issues costs money, but part of that is because sort of that was meant to be one leg of the intervention, right? So you come in with the police, you ameliorate the security situation, and that allows the state to come in with its other tools, 
right? And that did not happen, right? So I think that is part of the answer. I think the thing is, yes, there is a big bonus for you know, addressing the security problem, right? But the security problem is kind of one aspect of this policy ecosystem, right? And then the, the sort of broader institutional fragility eventually kind of catches up and, 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 and sort of, uh, you know, pulls the rug out of the, out of the whole, uh, you know, edifice to mix metaphors in a, in a crazy way, okay? So, so I think that is part of the reason, right? I think it's, it's, it has something to do with sort of security being one aspect of that absence of the state, which again is not uniformly distributed over time, over, over space, right, and, and across different people. But I think that's, that's a big part of the answer. So, and uh, I, mean, I, I asked you this question, but I, I would love to hear Emily's uh, view of Rodrigo as well. I'll start with Emily, because uh, as an outsider, you, you get the impression that uh, uh, the law and order type of, uh, of uh, rhetoric and, and speech does pay off politically in the U.S. And, uh, and it was, uh, uh, as Felipe said, in, 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 in Brazil, and it seems to pay off, but the uh, subsequent lags uh, were not there, and, uh, and we uh, didn't have all the, uh, the the positive impact that we hope to maintain. So, wh what's your take on this and policy in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you can have police reducing crime, but there's the government does more than that, right? And if the government fail, if all the government does is police, as opposed to be, you know, seen as also trying to increase access to health care and increase schools, right, um, and increase, you know, just pick up the trash regularly. You know, that is something that we've seen in the United States um, leads to increased community dissatisfaction with the police more broadly, and the, the police and the state more broadly, where, where, where um, the sort of relationship between low-income people and the community is one uh, I'm sorry, local people in the government is one where the government only polices you as opposed to also provides you with other services. And that, that just doesn't, that just doesn't work. We, we've seen now a couple of years of sort of social unrest in the United States because of this perception that all the government was doing in certain places was policing full stop. Um, and it is politically, it's always, you know, people will vote for lower crime. People are very afraid of being victimized. And so a politician who will promise to reduce the likelihood you're victimized is usually going to win. Right. Um, I do think it is important, though, that when the government does intervene, it does so successfully. And if you're talking about governments that have sort of tenuous holds on, um, you know, their institutional legitimacy, I'm now thinking of Mexico, crackdowns on crime and criminal organizations uh, and really sort of advanced criminal syndicates can backfire, where the government doesn't appear to win, right? Um, and the police is operating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when the police are already so entrenched in this cr in the sort of underlying criminality that attempts to crack down on crime can just totally With that, Rodrigo, your takes on the policy so, of Yeah, I mean, I agree, I agree with, with, with both points, I mean, uh, from Felipe and, and, and Emily. I just want to, in terms of Brazil, I want to step back a little, because I think in Brazil you have to think of this phenomenon from the perspective of, 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 uh, of history and coming out of the military dictatorship, mm -hmm. right? So I think this in part, I mean, you have a, a, a major rejection of any use of force by the state in the 80s right, coming out of the dictatorship. So it was forbidden for any politician to be in favor of, of, uh, of the police or, or to crack down on, on, on security 
or I mean, it was forbidden for the use to discuss for the state to, to discuss the use of force, right? And I think this allowed the, the increase in crime to 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 get a, a pace, let's say, to gain some some momentum. And uh, when people, when it became really a political priority, I think it was already such a huge problem. And the issue of the of the lack of efficiency and corruption within the police forces and lack of control of the of the police forces by the government made it kind of a tricky issue for 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 candidates, right? I mean, I think people didn't want to bet their 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 coins on this because they were not sure they would be able to to sort it out. I mean, first because because it was very expensive. And uh, we were, we had major uh, financial and, and budget crises throughout the eighties and nineties. But second, because you had to make use of a police force that we're not sure would be able to deal with the issue, right? So I think it had to cross kind of a maybe critical point where people say, "Yeah, let's go for it because we we may be able to do it, and there may be political gains." And I think when it happened, and I think it started in the big cities where violence increased first you actually had results, right? Without the corrupt police and so on and so forth, I mean, both in the cases of, of Sao Paulo, a major success, even until today, in the case of Belo Horizonte, you had some success. In Rio, more limited, I think, because the police is worse, organized crime was more entrenched. Now in Sao Paulo, it's a little different, but at that point, organized crime was more entrenched in, in, in Rio. The police was more corrupt and, and less efficient. Uh, but there were results along some of these dimensions when it came to the table and when it became a political priority, right? Uh, so I think there is the historical perspective there that made uh, we wait for a very long time to react. And I think this goes back to democratization and uh, what that implied in terms of the way that society saw police and saw the use of force by the state more, more generally. Thanks, Rodrigo. I'm, I've been told that I'm doing a very poor job in terms of uh, enforcement of time. So I should open the, the floor to questions, please. Uh, uh, please, and do, uh, because I did a very poor job in enforcing time, we have uh, very little time, please do uh, say your name, state your name, and please uh, pose your question in the form of a question. Uh, You are, you see. Okay, I'm from the Kennedy School, uh, first year of CID. Uh, so it seems to me that there's this comprehensive issue that is a correlation between crime and inequality. Uh, how do you incorporate reducing violence in the strategy to reduce inequality? And how do you incorporate reducing inequality in the strategy to reduce uh, violence and crime? How do you make this comprehensive strategy to make sure that those things are, that that, that is clear to, uh, that you're focusing the right groups and in the right well, just so quickly, I mean, I think this is a bit, uh, broad social policies and inclusive social policies in the long run are going to ameliorate that, right? So if you're talking about high-quality uh, elementary education, uh, high-quality secondary education with coverage, right? Like now, the secondary enrollment rate in Brazil is actually around 50% only, uh, net enrollment rate, secondary net enrollment rate. Uh, so we have a bunch of teenagers still that are, are getting out of school or falling behind. And uh, yeah, it switch resources away from, from, from the resources spent with the elite that we have on the tertiary educational system and in several other programs, and switch back to, to basic education, basic high-quality education, and access to services, police in every area of the city, 
and and uh, it, it's simple but tough, right, politically. <laughs> Emily, do you want to? Uh, So something that has been that has been increasingly used in the United States quite successfully um, is just direct provision of public safety by local businesses. Um, business improvement districts in the United States tend to be just businesses coordinating together to increase lighting, uh, which also in Brazil has made a huge deal, right, for crime in Rio along the beaches. Um, uh, private security, you know. So that is something where the business community and through its sort of own investments in private protection has been very successful at reducing crime. Um, I also think there is a large role for improvements in tech, the technology of monitoring both individuals in the community and also police to allow police to have better information about what, where crime is occurring and, and more specifically, this goes to a conversation Thomas and I were having before this, what is the problem that's leading to crime in a particular area? You know, and just being able to figure that out, um, which can be through you know, a, a variety of sort of you know, technological advances is something I think the business community could provide. Uh, on that question, I just want to make a, 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 a quick remark. Like in Brazil, for instance, uh, back in the early 80s, and uh, throughout uh, most of the period, the experience of businesses getting organized to fight crime, uh, I, I don't think it's a very, very successful one. Oh, yeah. uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, 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 mostly, it mostly manifested itself in death squads. And uh, so uh, I would be, uh, I, I, think, I think they do, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I think it, it's, it's, it's very context uh, sensitive here. I think in the U.S. Uh, I would, uh, I think business should should have a um, a real role in this, and it, and it, sure, and, if, uh, and evidently, I, I I would tend to think that in Latin America, in Brazil, in Latin America in general, uh, uh, if I were to make a, I, I, I would try to uh, avoid that, uh, but given the past experience. <laughs> I think it's a very, the issue of, of uh, you mean, I guess you're talking about the context of Brazil uh, specifically, right? I think it's, uh, I think it's a mess for several reasons and it's, it's it, I think it's difficult with even to, to, to begin, right? I, I think the issue of incarceration in Brazil, the issue of mistargeting of incarceration is gigantic. So you have these drug lords, like these guys that everybody knows the names, that they're going to, no, no matter what you do in Brazil, you're never going to spend more than, I don't know, six years in prison because you're never going to be in the end. I mean, you're going to have 30-something years of, uh, 
of sentence and then uh, if you if you don't kill anybody in prison you're going to be out with a third probably or something like that so at the same time that you have that you have a large number of, of, of people in prison for very minor offenses so I think it's extremely distorted the punishment system in Brazil extremely extremely distorted so it's, I even have a hard time talk, start talking about these other things uh, because of that right the issue of, of transfer, any transfer to, 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 to somebody who is in jail because of committing a crime, I think in, as an economist in terms of incentives, I think it's something extremely perverse, right? And uh, of, uh, we, have to, we must have a good educational, public educational system. We must have a good uh, public health system so that anybody in the country, including the sons and daughters of people who are in jail, have access to good education and to good, uh, and to good health, right? That's a given. But to give money to a guy who is in jail and not give money to a guy who's as poor this, as this guy but happens to be out of jail, as an economist, it's, uh, people would take my, my degree away if I said <laughs> I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, uh, I would like to uh, uh, ask uh, Emily to comment on, uh, because of your question, on the, the, the how incarceration uh, plays out in the producing or reproducing inequality and reproducing crime uh, with the evidence that we, we don't have a lot of evidence, in the quantitative evidence, uh, evidence in Brazil or Latin America, but in the U.S. we have a lot. Yeah, and in the United States, that there is the sort of, there appears to be the sort of intergenerational transmission of criminal activity. Right? There, there's also a lot of interesting evidence um, from Europe, actually, from, from Scandinavia, where what you have in um, a lot of Scandinavian countries, like Sweden in particular, are these sort of census registries where you can track the criminal behavior of parents and their children and their grandchildren. Right? And so Randy Yalmerson has done some really interesting research you know, with all sort of catchy titles like, like Godfather, like Son, showing that there is this <laughs> positive correlation between you know, whether or not your father was incarcerated versus you know, only arrested and the probability that you end up being incarcerated later. Um, and this is sort of really compelling, almost census data, right? Just documenting how if your parent is incarcerated, and you know, loses work, right, and has you know maybe a harder time finding a job. Although the magnitudes of these, I think, are a little bit in debate as to how you know really large a magnitude that is. Um, you know, this is going to plausibly lead to you as a child having less resources. Um, I, I think there's actually a little bit of controversy as the ex as to the extent to which having a parent removed from the household um, increases or decreases um, child outcomes. This is in part because you could have, on average, some of these people should be removed from their homes, and the child is better off not being around a violent parent. Um, there's also just really you know, an absence of, I think, really credible variation um, in figuring out who is a really sort of good counterfactual for a child whose parent is removed. But, but this is something that, you know, to the extent that we have data that really does allow us to consistently co uh, connect sort of large cohorts of people over time, it's a very suggestive and intuitively really appealing kind of idea. Right? To think about this as both the social cost of incarceration as the impact on children. We, we have just ran out of time. Please, just uh, if you have a very quick question, because I have to take a couple of questions from, from, from Facebook uh, Live as well. But please, go ahead. I was thinking about who are the hackers um, and where can you 
I mean, I don't know, like in Brazil, the vast majority of, of, of extreme violence is going to be concentrated in prime age men, right? Even if you, there are some, let's say, ethnographic studies on, on gang members and so on. What I've seen, uh, I mean, it was like, I don't know, I think 80, 85 percent of the members being, being boys, right? And, uh, and when you look at the homicide rates for prime age single, single men and prime age women, it's going to be probably, what, four times, I guess, or even more, right, uh, among males and females. So this extreme violence in, in Brazil, and I think most of Latin America, is going to be mostly concentrated on males, right, and, uh, and criminal in involvement as well, right. Uh, I think there's another issue of domestic violence that sometimes comes together with that, but in terms of the criminal, uh, let's say, violence associated with what we regard as common crime, not like family crime, going to be mostly dominantly male, really, by a vast uh, proportion. Uh, with that, uh, we, we, uh, we are really run, running out of time, and I wanted to uh, get a qu uh, one question, at least, from, from Facebook. Uh, I have uh, Gabriela Reyes here. She is asking us, uh, thank you very much for the question. Uh, and uh, this, I think it's a good question to wrap it up, uh, because uh, it'll give you uh, it's It's kind of in a Latin American context, but I, I would It'd be great if the three of you could comment so we wrap it up. Uh, inequality has been, has been always high in Latin America. However, crime rates have been increasing in recent years. One thing is to maybe uh, qualify that statement. And uh, my question is, wouldn't it be the quality of growth in the Latin American region more than inequality that is having an, uh, an impact uh, in the rise of crime? So I would add on that, on because the, there's the intricacies of uh, how we grew and maybe crime has increased uh, and inequality in certain places. Uh, just like a quick comments from, uh, from the three of you on, on this and maybe Emily with a little bit more of a, a U.S. perspective. So I would say, I mean, what this makes me think, and I think it's actually like a general policy message. Uh, uh, so it is true indeed that sort of crime has risen like substantially in, in Latin America with, I mean, there's like these ups and downs like in different places and so on, but if you think about like, uh, overall, I can sort of a more secular trend. Uh, but I think we've been kind of talking over and over about these feedback mechanisms and how like inequality feeds into crime, which feeds into inequality and crime feeds into itself and so on and so forth. And this is the kind of social phenomenon that leads to what uh, we economists with our love of jargon refer to as like multiple equilibria, right? So we have situations where crime is very high because crime is very high it pays off to, like, the, the, the return to crime becomes higher, like, likelihood that you get caught is, like, lower. That goes, the same goes for corruption and so on and so forth. And in these situations, it's actually, you know, if you want to end up with sort of a more hopeful note even, it's like you can actually have a lot of bang for a given policy buck, right? So even though the problem seems, like, really huge and intractable, it might be that relatively small intervention that looks small relative to the size of the, uh, of the problem might actually have a big impact. So I think that this uh, uh, pattern, let's say, that, uh, that the question sort of detects may not really be indicative of, well, there's something weird that has been happening about like the way growth has taken place and so on. It might just be that we've moved to kind of a high crime equilibrium and that doesn't mean that we can kind of, that we cannot 
get out of that, uh, or that we have to solve, you know, the whole development problem of Latin America before we solve that. So. This is like a, almost a, a question for you guys with a more like institutional detail about how Brazil works. And this builds off of our, our discussion about the absence of the state in large parts of Brazil, um, which is this, this comment that crime is rising or only a problem in Latin America now. Um, I don't think that it is always fully appreciated how miraculous um, the way we measure crime in the United States is through the Uniform Crime Reports. The fact that we have like a consistently defined over time and over space measure of what criminal activity is. It's not perfect, but it's been around since the 60s and it was a huge, like, I mean, it's actually been around since the 30s. That's another point, right? It, it's a big deal that we have a reasonably reliable measure of crime. Um, and in places where the state is also everywhere, but we still worry about this sort of reporting effect where we learn about more crime once the state enter, once there is policing, and once people do use the police, then we, we hear about crime. And it's not that crime wasn't occurring, we just know about it more now. Um, and to what extent you think the, the increase in crime in Latin America is due to that? Yeah, I think a lot of this discussion in Latin America is fo focused on homicide rates in part because of this problem. If you get to, to, to specific uh, crime reporting, it's going to have serious issues even more in smaller countries and so on and so forth with less uh, state capacity. On the other hand, as well, because obviously homicide is the most extreme outcome and I think an extreme form of violence. In terms of, of the question, I think to, to, to look at Latin America today as a, a single and homogeneous experience, I think is very actually mistaken, right? So and I, th I think it's not obvious that uh, you have this increasing pattern of crime in Latin America. We have, uh, look at Colombia. Colombia seems almost miraculous what happened in Colombia over the last 15 years. It's incredible. It's, and I think few Colombians probably would believe it if 20 years ago we told them what would have happened over these this 20 years. Mexico, we see Mexico today with this explosion of violence to a great extent as we imagine associated with the changing drug routes now going through Mexico. Up to the late 2000s, Mexico was actually experiencing a long-term decline in violence. Say for the from, from uh, late 90s, I think, to, to late 2000s until this, this, this reversion, it was a, a reduction of over more than 15 years, right? You get Sao Paulo, it's a place that today mimic some, some dimensions of the Colombian experience where you have uh, homicide rates are 15, 20% of what they were 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so I think it's a very diverse, uh, the, the experience in the, in the region is very diverse, and it actually reflects the fact that uh, changes are actually possible. I think it goes back to, to Philippe's point. Brazil as a whole, it's kind of stabilized, experienced a decline at some point, it went up back a little bit and kind of stabilized, but it is because also maybe you shouldn't look at Brazil as a single entity in terms of crime, because when you go and look inside the country, what's happening is like in some places you have Sao Paulo with 20% of homicide rates of what it had 15 years ago. In other places you have some northeastern capitals where it has exploded over the last 20 years. So I think it's misleading to look at this because there is no policy for Latin America. There are policies that are local policies for crime, right? And uh, and and based on that, we do see very very different different trajectories, right? Just another point: uh, the, the Latin America as a whole looks also uh, pretty bad now because you have also an explosion of violence in Central America to a large extent, also due to internationalization of their trades and the and the prison gangs exported back from the U.S to Central America, and some countries coming out of long-term civil wars and so on and so forth, right? 
so I would, I, in some sense, I would dispute the, the, the claim of the, of the question, and I would say that we should look at this specific experience, and they are very diverse. So I, I think we, we ran out of time. This is really exciting. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, your participation on behalf of the CIG. I really thank you, and thanks for the audience for the question, and I thank, thanks for those watching us live on uh, Facebook. With that, we wrap it up. Thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.